Sure, we hadn't, we haven't worked out how to corner yet, or stay cool, or stay on the ground, and a lot of stuff broke. In fact, the only thing that didn't break was the brakes. Hell, right now, we don't even know if our paint job will last a whole 24 hours. Hey everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You know the premise. Mike and I watch movies separately, then we talk about them on the show for the first time. Today I'm very excited. We have a Dan pick. We're going to continue our James Mangold fest here, and we're going to be talking about what movie, Mike? Ford versus Ferrari. Ford versus Ferrari, 2019, directed, as I said, by James Mangold, written by Jez Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, and Jason Keller. Um, we've already done Logan, which we liked. We've already done 310 to Yuma, which we liked, right? And in part one, we always talk about an overall take. I have a million takes on this movie. I like it a lot. Mike, we've never talked about it till now. What's your overall take on Ford versus Ferrari? I expected to hate this movie uh, because this is uh, pretty much everything that bothers me about modern movies as the premise. I'm not talking about the delivery, so stick with me. Um, the number one thing I hate is when people um, open the Times or the New Yorker and somebody writes an interesting six-page expose about something that happened 30 years ago and they're like you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna turn that into a two-hour movie because it's almost always boring um there was a movie i can't remember the name of it it's got mark ruffalo in it where the guys uh and and men and women from the globe the reporters they break open the story about the catholic church abuse scandal in the 90s which of course should be absolutely riveting horrifying uh, a two hour movie, but it's just Mark Ruffalo running for like 30 minutes. I don't like, you know what I mean? And I'm not as a viewer, I just don't have time to sit through that kind of ordeal again. You mean you're is, not going to watch Tetris? That's correct. Uh, so, te so Tetris is actually everything that I hate. I know nothing about that movie. I only texted you that I can't believe I would actually rather play Tetris for two hours than see this movie because that's everything that I despise. So that's what I expected with Ford versus Ferrari. And you can always tell that they're going to make this kind of, of crap because generally they'll stuff a big name into the crap. And the more big names I see, the more suspicious I get because obviously they're trying to they're trying to bloat the movie. Like Air, like the movie that's out now about how they got Nike got Michael Jordan. There you go. Right. So that that's exactly the kind of stuff that uh, horrifies me as a viewer, just totally turns me off. Um, but I do have a friend uh, named Austin, who uh, is a big Formula One fan and twisted my arm to see this movie before you requested that we did on the on the podcast. This is actually before I knew James Mangold directed it. So I saw it and I liked it. And I think that the reason I liked it is, first of all, this this has an absolutely taut script. You can't you can't take even one second out of this. Uh, and and lose anything. There's no scenes of people running. There's um, all the character arcs work. Uh, it's not actually two separate. What what they try to do sometimes is they'll try to take two separate stories and have them converge, uh, and they always flub the con the the convergence between those two stories. This is absolutely one story about a real team, and they get such complex history, such Rocky esque losses that are truly victories and they get it so right 
with exactly the right amount of practical effects that the whole movie works. This 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 film is meant to be listened to loud uh, and it's it's fun to watch. It's fun to experience. And it may have redeemed this whole genre of two hour movies with Matt Damon about things that actually happened, who, by the way, I found out is in air, which I'm not going to see. So it's not a Matt Damon thing, although he's good in the movie. I have another Matt Damon crossover fact for you. You know, um, I had recently just seen The Martian. Have you ever seen The Martian? No. So in The Martian, you know, big Andy Weir novel, you know, big, big movie and stuff like that. Matt Damon's in that as well. And I like watching films where you see smart people tackle problems. And I think it's interesting how that comes apart. Like, I don't know anything about, about racing. I'm not interested in racing, but I'm interested in the people, right? So you watch him do this. In The Martian, there's a series of Ridley Scott who directed it. gives you all these problems that he's got to solve when he's stranded on Mars. But you're, you're, this, the, the setup for the problem and the solution is constantly being explained to the viewer. Well, here's the problem. Here's what you have to do. Some character, Matt Damon or another guy on Earth, explains it. In this one, their problems are all about human beings. Like, how do you deal with the bureaucracy? How do you deal with the fact that the people above you don't have the imagination that you do and they resent you for it? And then when there is a technical thing, you just kind of shrug. Like when they say, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to replace the brake pads and the rotors. We're going to put in the new brake assembly. And, and when they had that idea, Mike, and you watch that, what did you say to yourself? You I can't believe that's allowed in the rules, but okay. That's okay, awesome. go, go ahead. I didn't need to learn how the brakes work and how the heat, fr- like you, you just do it because you trust the characters. And you mentioned Rocky, right? And it's very, very much a Rocky-esque kind of thing. Um, I also have a weakness for watching people shift gears and hit the clutch at the same time. I don't know why I like watching that so much. And you get a lot of that in this movie. But for me, the real, the real appeal of the film is the tension between the front office, like in the Deuce and BB and, and uh, you know, Christian Bale and Matt Damon. And I love that those sets of values clash. And that guy that plays BB is the perfect, isn't he the perfect project manager? He's just got a hole written all over. Isn't it him. great? Isn't it great? And Ken says, I mean, he says they want to please their boss who wants to please his boss, who wants to please his boss. And they hate themselves for it. But deep down, who they hate even more are guys like you because you're not like them, because you don't think like them, because you're different. And that's what I think makes this movie work. If you've ever had a job, you know what it's like when people who don't have your imagination have to give you orders and you have to, you want to buck the system, but you can't because it requires a certain kind of person to do that. And you get a, you get a rise of watching these two guys do that. Well, I think the joke of it is we've all experienced that, but then you get somebody who throws a wrench in it, act like actually throws a wrench through the window, right? So that the so that the wrench itself becomes famous. Uh, my here's what I like, and maybe it's a perverse thing to like. I like when people are super famous that they they achieve the absolute heights of fame, but it's a very narrow base, so that only you, you have to be like a subgenre of a subgenre of a subgenre to like that person at that height. And that's what I think about Miles. That's why I th- that's why I think a movie about Miles works. It's not just, you know, n- spoiler alert. It's not just that they don't win, um, but he does like the best race of his life, but he really does win. It's that that name is like making a movie about Elvis to some people. So me walking into this is literally like not knowing who Elvis is and being like, hey, that kid can sing. That's cool. 
same here because I've talked to other people about how much I love this movie and they've told me about a friend of mine said, well, there's other documentaries you could watch that kind of, they paint the, the friendship in a different way. And this one might be more sympathetic to, you know, uh, you know, Henry Ford's son. There's a bunch of ways you can do it. But I think this, I think this movie is like a Shakespearean history play. It takes a real series of events and then it graphs onto those events the things in which the filmmaker is interested. And in this case, I think what the filmmaker is interested in is friendship and creativity and, and trying to trying to keep those things intact in, and, and but also having to play the game because you need money to do those. Well, speaking of what you need, it, it's the same thing that you actually need to get a film produced. Right. Jay Leno, who collects cars, uh, was talking to Matt Damon, did an interview and mentioned that the idea for this script has been bouncing around since the 70s. So since about half a generation after Le Mans, they've been trying to, to make this movie, but it was always, a, he said it was a broad caper movie, you know, of assembling the team. It was way longer than a two hour movie. Everybody had imagined it at an epic scale. And so just like a race car, what had to happen is somebody like James Mangold had to come along and pull out the non-essential bits, but keep the same engine, but lighten everything up so that you can go with that amount of speed and force. So what's funny is that what they're doing to the car is a metaphor for the way that the movie gets made in the first place and it, and it runs great. Hi, welcome back. In part two, we always talk about our favorite moments. So many good moments in this film, Mike, what's yours? Well, my moment uh, is kind of an obvious one. It's, it's one of the more famous clips from the movie, which is where uh, Matt Damon as Shelby takes Henry Ford Jr. for a ride in the GT. So up until then, he's been a, a, a bureaucrat, the owner of the company, spewing stuff that his, you know, that his father had said. Um, however, uh, what he doesn't know is what it's like, uh, which also what I don't don't know, uh, to, you know, to sit in the passenger seat of a race car, to, not only out of control, but totally within some somebody else's hands and reflexes. And um, what I found is none of that is CGI. So that's all practical effects. Um, that's just that's just camera tricks to pick up the sound and aura uh, of the uh, practical cars that they were uh, actually in. Um, the whole scene is scintillating. And then, of course, the big part is that Henry Ford Jr. played by this, uh, you know, big, obnoxious fat guy who can barely fit in the car as it is, uh, breaks down and weeps. And at first you think he's weeping because he's been frightened, but then you find out that he's been weeping because he's experienced the beauty of something that his family's company had made that he didn't even know. And that's actually what he sobs. He sobs. I never knew. I never knew. I wish my daddy had been here to see this. And that's, that's how they break him down and get him to agree to whatever they want to give miles a chance to let them build the cars, uh, however they want, uh, and not to suffer interruptions from these middle managers. It's, it's the ultimate appeal to the top. And I think that that's, that's what I kind of like about kind of subgenre lifestyle is that there, there are beautiful things, but it's, it's that outsiders don't understand them. And if you can only find some way for them to experience them the way you experience them, literally get behind the wheel of them, you know, people would share your enthusiasm, but it's just kind of a tremendous, joyful breakthrough and I think that the film from then on is filled with many more practical effects, much more driving. It's a, it's a conversion experience for a lot of people in the audience, too, who thought, OK, this is going to be boring for me because it's not the kind of thing that I enjoy. But the film sees you coming and builds multiple doorways for you to get in. 
Harold Shelby makes him weep in the presence of something great. And that's kind of how I know you feel this way. And I do too, when you see like a truly unbelievably great movie or when you read a great book, right? Which is why every time you read a great book or I do, what are we always texting each other? You have to see this. You have to read this. You have to see this, right? Because we want to convey to other people what that feeling is like. And some people never have that feeling, but you keep trying, right? Henry Ford Jr. the second, he never had that feeling until he sat in the car. And it's it's in the beautiful thing, of course, is it's incomprehensible to them because he's been on the tip of it. How is it that your family makes cars, but you don't really like cars? You like a certain kind of economic model where everybody in America has makes enough money to buy a Ford, but that doesn't mean you like cars. Let me show you what a car is. Yeah, it's it, it, that's exactly what that moment's like. So my moment is kind of tied into that. It's when Christian Bale is singing, I'm H-A-P-P-Y, I'm H-A-P-P-Y. And I want to talk about what makes him happy because this is a film where you know, you actually get to see somebody be generally happy. I just finished um, Quentin Tarantino's book about movies in the 70s called uh, um, Cinema Speculation. And he says in it, 70s movies are all about guys with problems. And this movie is about, it really is about, there's a lot of joy in this movie, don't you think? And like a lot of happiness, which is why it's such an easy movie to recommend. There's a thing called positive psychology. Now, now bear me out. In 2004, this guy named Martin Seligman wrote an essay, a famous essay called A Balanced Psychology in a Full Life. And his whole argument is, he was a psychologist. He said, psychology has done wonders to get people who are suffering out of that suffering and to kind of heal them. But one thing we haven't even looked at is what makes happy people happy? Like, how does it work? How do you go from like baseline zero up to a 10? And that started this thing called positive psychology, which if you just hear it on the surface, it sounds like some hippy dippy thing, but it's not, it's like a real academic discipline. And so a lot of people have written, and I've read a lot of this about like, what, what are the constituents of happiness? And there's people will say things like you have it's um you have to be attuned you have to have confidence your relationships right um having a skilled and meaningful thing you do that matters just for you right like you do something just for the thrill of it we see that going on here but also a big part of happiness is this thing called flow where you achieve what's called kind of like the flow state so you think of like uh, you know a guitar player in the middle of a big solo or somebody conducting an orchestra and that becomes like you know, time becomes irrelevant and you are like totally in the zone and you can't live there. Like you would be able to function. Right. But I think that's what Christian Bale is chasing when he races. Like he says, you know, somewhere out there's the perfect lap and he's got to get up to like seven, 7,000 RPM to get there. And I think what he does is he gives, um, Henry Ford, the second, he gives him like a taste of that flow and it, it blows his mind. Because a lot of people never really achieve that and, and he gets a taste of it and that's when he changes and that's when the movie changes because then we get to the whole 45 minute sequence of the all day race and we're totally in it. We don't experience the flow like the drivers do, but we kind of get like secondhand, this is what it must be like. Yeah, and I, I think that there are interesting games with time going on with the camera because all the exterior shots are about shaving off tenths of a second right. from, from different micro decisions but all the interior shots particularly of miles are just of him being miles yeah and somehow it's the it's the same universe but seen literally exterior interior um which i think is the dichotomy that you're actually talking about yeah we can only watch somebody experience flow but we can't experience it ourselves unless we know what it's like like neither of us you said before neither of us know what it's like to drive a car like that Neither of us have ever even been in a car as a passenger like that, right? What is it? Well, the closest you can get 
is a movie. Welcome back. So, of course, in part three, we talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. I think the title takes care of itself, uh, unless you have anything on that, Dan. But what, what do you have to say about the ending? What I have to say about the ending is how you feel when it's over. I had seen this movie twice, and then when I rewatched it for the podcast, I had still, and I think this is interesting, I had still forgotten what happens to Christian Bale. And then when that scene happens at the end, I thought, oh, that's right. That's right. So I think it's kind of interesting that I, uh, that I have forgot that because his friendship with Matt Damon is so strong. And I think that that's so refreshing to see a movie about genuine friendship. Now, as our listeners may remember, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, we did another great movie about friendship, Mikey and Mickey. But of course, that's about a friendship. Friendship and hell. Friendship and hell that goes, that goes south, right? Um, but I think t- it's very refreshing to see a film that treats adult friendship in a way that is not cloying, in a way that's not sentimental, and in a way that actually gets close to like what it's like to be friends with somebody. And sometimes your friends are a pain, and sometimes they will throw a wrench at you. But um, there, to, to walk that fine line between actual dramatization of human experience and not have it lapse into sentimentality, I think that's a really, really thing this movie does really well. You can only have a few true friends. Maybe you can only have one true friend. But part of the point is that they complete you. And I think that what this movie does well is it is it dramatizes that in a non-sentimental way, which is some someone is a great driver of machines and somebody is a builder of machines and the builder doesn't drive and the driver doesn't build. And so the right, it, it's not like Jerry Maguire. He doesn't say, you, you know, you, you complete me, right? But 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 they do complete one another because the thing that happens, their their shared victory, which is not a victory at Le Mans, it is the victory of a machine that was built by a man and then a machine that was the same machine that was driven by another man. And and it's so it's non-attributable. It's it's like it's a thing that they've done together that can't be broken into parts and given separately. Where does one person's influence end and the other one begin? Right. Um, you know, it's funny because to get all to get all meta and self-referential here for a second, when people have heard our podcast, um, they've said, uh, well, it's kind of funny. Like, do you think it would be easier to do with one person? And what's your answer? Someone said you have to do this alone. Absolutely. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. And what's difficult about doing it alone? It, it's very difficult to speak into a vacuum about things that you like. Yeah, right. Like at least at least now we're having a conversation, right? But of course, the other person says stuff that makes you kind of like think of something that leads down a different cul-de-sac. So it's kind of like there's this Venn diagram. And I think that's what happens in, in a lot of creative collaborations, right? You have um, you know, um Rogers and Hammerstein. That's right. I just compared us to Rogers and Hammerstein. I'll go all the way, you know, Scorsese and Schumacher, I'll do them all. But but of course, that's that creative overlap where you see that dramatized so well because you're right. The, the thing they have in common is a love for these cars, but you can't tell in the in the movie where, you know, um, Matt Damon's influence begins and ends and where Christian Bale's begins and ends. And by the way, the, I think the thing that stops this from being over the top is that they they lose on a technicality at Le Mans, but they get the respect that they were actually after. And there's something, there's there's always some kind of cheesy line in movies like this that makes me roll my eyes. This movie's che- cheesy line uh, I found had uh, unexpected depth, which is that Miles tells him 
you promised me the drive, not the victory. And I think that there's something about flow that you were saying that's that's connected to the idea of the drive and not the victory. And and I think the people who enjoy the drive tend to get the victory more, but the people who want the victory but don't enjoy the don't enjoy the drive are are doomed in some way. But th- but this this movie is an it's an, an example, it's a structural example of, of how to get around going for the the victory and not enjoying the drive. Yes, because if somebody said to you, Mike, it's not it's not the destination, it's the journey. That I know you well enough. That is it. That would make your eyes roll up so far in your skull. You'd have to go to the emergency yes. room. But here it actually may, right, exactly, because it is a victory because they, what do they win? He has to come in just so it's Ford, Ford, Ford. He has to, you know, that, that, so he does that to placate them, but he totally wins our admiration, which ultimately I think that James Mangold thinks is more important than whoever won the trophy that year. And it, it's why Miles ha- eventually has to step out of time, right? Because you could end right there. And then um, you could do the thing from uh, the end of Animal House or whatever, where it's like Miles was killed two years later, you know, with, with the, you know, with the legend. But it's another thing to have him in the driver's seat die a certain kind of death and then to see the friendship carry on because the machine still exists. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Ford versus Ferrari. Follow us on Twitter at 15MANFilm. You can also follow us where, Mike? Letterboxd letterbox and let us know what we should watch next who knows maybe it'll be another james mangold film we got some more mike so we'll see you next time